1: Today. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. You see it on the news, you see it on the paper,
2: you see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life.
0: His
3: personality was very sweet, very outgoing, was not shy by any means. I was young and naive, so you know, every guy looked good looking to me, tall, dark, and handsome. He was all right, you know, good guy. There was a good point where all of us would always go over to one person or another's house. We'd hang out together, we'd barbecue, we'd stay up all night, we'd drink, we'd party. He kind of disappeared off the face of the earth, and then the next thing I know, I'm scrolling through Facebook, and I see the Gillette news records, and I actually read the caption, and I was like, Oh, that's him. <laughs> and it is him. And and I was, I was total shock. I was like, There's no way this is real.
2: Welcome to the first degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fanick. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter. Yet again, she is wearing first degree merch, some vintage goodies, always looking good. We should
0: bring this one back. This is my, fa- I also want another one. This one's getting kind of beat up. Yeah. This is one of my favorites, and so many people. When if I post it on Instagram or something by accident,
2: everybody wants this one, yeah, she's wearing the stranger things inspired hoodie, which was a it was one of our best sellers I, maybe we will bring it back. Let's bring it back, and maybe in another color, maybe white with red, oh no, 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 that's okay, never mind you lose vetoed. the whole appeal of it being spooky vetoed <laughs> vetoed um also, uh if any of you came to our meetups over the past month, I was giving out firsty bracelets like old JV OG bracelets. Um, And we have some extras because I ordered way too many because I wanted to put them up on our website. So maybe by this time, they'll be up for you guys to buy. Because if you didn't make it, it's just like, it it makes me feel good and nostalgic. And we all just have a reason to all to come together. And if you didn't make it, you're still a firstie. It doesn't mean... You know, and
0: we're going to try to do more of these. Every time we have to be in a city for anything, for work, we're going to do meetups. It went so well. So we're going to keep them coming.
2: Yeah. Even if we're in the middle of nowhere and we have one firstie coming to meet us for a drink at the bar, it's worth it. Absolutely. All right. Well, before we start our episode, I just wanted to remind everybody that if you are out of first degree content and you want to hear our voices more and more and more, please join our Patreon. We have over a year's worth of banked episodes every single week you get a full length true crime episode and we would love to have you over there
0: yeah and a lot of these episodes all of them recently have been listener submissions so cases that people are intrigued by and want to know more about and they request us to research them and we do so that's what's over there just full length hour-long true crime cases
2: to feed your need Absolutely. Well, that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety, because this could be you.
0: So what does it mean to be a friend? Is it someone who holds your hair back after a wild night or someone who watches your kids when the babysitter cancels? Or how about a person who lets you borrow their truck when you need to move across the country or across town? Friends are there for us. That's the point of them, right? They send an encouraging message on a hard day at work and they'll meet us for coffee or indulge in a long phone call after you haven't touched base in a really long time. There are a million little ways our friends let us know they care and that they love us. And that's so important to the human experience. Without friends, we wouldn't exist today. Back in caveman times, we had to forge friendships to survive. And today, it's the same. Without friends to share our experiences with, life is much more challenging. And in many ways, friends make life worth living. They're the glue holding us together, making the worst parts of life more tolerable. We look forward to seeing our friends, and that helps us push through our hardships. And the best part about friendships? We get to pick them. We get to invite these wonderful people into our lives because we know we'll be better for their presence. But what if we pick the wrong person to be our friend? What if they make our lives worse, threaten us, put us in danger? What if they're friends who are never really our friends at all? What then? How do we navigate relationships with
2: bad friends? And how do we navigate ending them? So today's case begins on September of 2016. In movie theaters, Clint Eastwood's film Sully, starring Tom Hanks, was premiering. And in music, the Chainsmokers Closer topped the Billboard charts at number one and stayed there for 12 weeks straight. And meanwhile, Netflix announced the second season of Stranger Things. And ironic. What a coincidence. Very much. And in Washington, D.C., the National Museum of African-American History and Culture opens its doors after four years of construction. Over 37,000 items relating to Black history are featured in the museum. And this includes a sewing project that Rosa Parks was working on the day she refused to give up her bus seat to a white man in 1955.
0: And the setting for today's case is Gillette, Wyoming. Situated in the northeast corner of Wyoming, Gillette is the seat of Campbell County. And Gillette is a unique little town. Back in the 90s, Gillette's population was as low as 19,000 people. But within just 20 years, their population increased by about 60% to 32,000 people. That's a huge population spike for such a short amount of time. And this happened because in the early 2000s, the fossil fuel industry exploded there, making it a modern-day boom town. Suddenly, there were more job openings than ever. And more jobs mean more people. And more people arriving to one town that quickly... Well, that means, of course, more crime. And there are socioeconomic reasons for that. Boomtowns like Gillette experience a lot of social disruption like divorce, homelessness, welfare issues, financial struggles, and more. And today, Gillette is known as a national energy hub, but it's also known for its crime rate. In fact, some reports show that Gillette is more dangerous than almost 90% of all of the other cities in the state of
2: Wyoming. And today we have not one, but two first degrees for today's case because it's our lucky day. Their names are Emily and Tisha, and they've been best friends for over 20 years, ever since they first met in the third grade. And here's Emily to tell us a little bit about it.
3: I was born in Mexico. We came to the United States when I was six. And in third grade is when I met Leticia. I didn't know any English. She didn't know any Spanish, <laughs> but somehow we got along and, you know, it all went from there. And we did elementary school together. In middle school, I believe she moved to a different school, so we would still talk on the phone every once in a while. You know, we were young. And then we kind of reconnected in high school, and it's kind of been that way ever since. We have gone through everything together. We've had no falling out, you know, at all. We've always been really close.
2: And here's Tisha.
3: We're as close as it could possibly get. (laughs) We're practically sisters.
2: And it's clear that Tisha and Emily have forged an amazing friendship and near-sisterly bond over the years.
3: I had three brothers growing up. I had two half-brothers and a younger brother. So I always wanted a sister. Always. I tried to trade my little brother for a sister. It didn't work. And so when I met Leticia, it was like she was the sister I always wanted. And, you know, we're in our 30s now and we're still best friends. I know she has no other best friends. I'm the only one.
0: (laughs) After high school, Tisha moved to Gillette, Wyoming, a place which, according to Tisha, has changed a lot over the years.
3: It's a big rodeo town. Small town. I think when I first moved there, population was maybe like 16,000. I'm sure now it's a little bit more like, yeah, like 30-ish. When I first moved there, it was a very, very small town. They didn't have half the stores they have now. It's grown over the years. They had a big boom with natural gas and oil and all of those things too and it was really doing good. It's a little bit different of a place now today than what it was back then. <laughs>
2: And even though Emily lived in Colorado, she was able to experience Gillette firsthand every time she visited Tisha. And that's how Emily came to know some of Tisha's friends, including an older guy named Michael Montano, who went by Mike. So Tisha met Mike through her then-boyfriend sometime around 2011, and Tisha's boyfriend of the time and Mike were both placed in the same halfway house, which was run by the Volunteers of America. So when you hear us say VOA, that is what we're referring to, the Volunteers of America halfway house.
3: I was dating a guy that I knew from where I worked and he so happened to be in the halfway house. So he was in the VOA there in Gillette, Wyoming. And he so happened to be Michael Montaño's roommate. So I would go drop off food a lot for my ex. So I'd make food, drop it off for him. He was there allowed to have it and he would share it with his roommate. And so, you know, it would turn into like, hey, well, can your girlfriend run this errand for me? And then eventually I met him in person and I was like the go-to person if they needed something or an errand ran because they couldn't leave the VOA, I was the one to go and do it for them.
0: (laughs) Over time, Mike and Tisha became fairly close. And when Mike got out of the VOA, he even helped Tisha out for a while. He'd hire Tisha for odd jobs and to run errands just so she could make some extra cash.
3: We just started talking, communicating, and I was the gopher for a little bit. And eventually, Michael had passed and did everything he needed to do to get out of the VOA. So when he got out, he kind of took care of me a little bit. He was like, hey come clean my house and I'll pay you. I know you need a little extra money or, Hey, you need this for your house. I'll buy that for you. Like, you know, kind of just really was like, you did a lot for me. Like, let me repay you in a way too. And our friendships just kind of grew from there. And we spent a lot of time together after that.
2: Tisha was well aware that Mike had a criminal record. After all, she'd been introduced to Mike while he was in that halfway house. But even though Tisha didn't know the specifics of Mike's criminal history, she didn't feel that Mike was really dangerous at all. You know, he just made some mistakes in his past. And as we all know, being incarcerated doesn't necessarily mean somebody is a bad person. Obviously, there are so many different factors that could be at play.
3: I really never knew. I knew it was not a sex offender type crime from what I understood, but I also never asked for details. But I also was because I met a lot of people through him after that, that were all, everybody was getting out of the VOA. Everybody had just been out of prison or they've been in the prison in the past. And each of them had different crimes and some of them were real petty and some of them were like, okay, well, don't mess with that person, (laughs) you know? So that was something where I never really got full, like, detail as to what he was doing. I know that there was mention of different involvement and different types of things and activities (laughs) that were not the type of activities that somebody should normally be participating in, (laughs) if you know what I mean. I kept quiet, kept to myself, and I knew not to ask the wrong questions. You know, it was partially being
0: scared to really know and... I didn't want to piss anybody off. Based on public records, we're pretty sure we know the crime that Mike had just finished serving time for before he entered the VOA. In 2009, 30 year old Mike broke into someone's home for the purpose of a robbery. Then he threatened two people at gunpoint. For that, Mike was sentenced to 42 to 96 months in prison. And then he was released in November of 2011. Later, in 2015, Mike was arrested for driving while under the influence with an open container in his vehicle and controlled substances in his possession.
2: And we're not exactly sure what the controlled substances were, but there is a good chance that it was heroin. Mike's sister told the news outlets that Mike struggled with pervasive heroin addiction. And Mike's sister said that Mike's heroin addiction really changed him. Before, he was known for helping others and being loyal to his friends. But after, Mike's sister became so uncomfortable with Mike's behavior that she broke off all contact with him. But of course, Fitch and
0: Emily weren't privy to all of this information. It's not like we're background-checking our friends, you know? And to them, Mike seemed like a pretty good guy. He made a decent living... And he was really nice to them. He appeared completely normal.
3: He had a really good job. If I remember right, at that time, I want to say he was working in the oil fields. So he made good money. He had a one-bedroom apartment in the middle of town, all by himself. He would leave early in the morning, be gone almost all day. He'd have friends over in the evening. Sometimes I'd cook for all of them.
2: And Mike went out of his way to charm Tisha. And if you're a woman, you might be a little suspicious of Mike's intentions. And honestly, that's fair. Tisha is this dynamic, beautiful 20-something. And Mike is, you know, a guy.
3: His personality was very sweet, very outgoing, was not shy by any means. I was young and naive, so, you know, every guy looked good-looking to me, tall, dark, and handsome. But I was also dating somebody at the time, too, so it was never like I looked at him in that way. It was always a peer friendship between him and I. He was all right, you know, good guy. Like, at first, you know, realizing the age difference, too, I was, like, 20, I believe, at the time. Mm -hmm. And he was, like, 30. Mm-hmm. So there was like a ten years age gap, and again, my mama did teach me better, and I was a little like, mm-hmm. you know, this is kind of weird that I'm hanging out with older people, but I'm mature enough to do this, so why not? <laughs> there was a good point where all of us would always go over to one person or another's house. We'd hang out together. We'd barbecue. We'd stay up all night. We'd drink. We'd party. We did all all the things. A lot of the times I was the DD. A lot of the times it was just we went and we drank until we all decided, you know, enough was enough. (laughs) But that went on for, gosh, maybe like a year.
0: And so life went on. Tisha's relationship with that boyfriend that roomed with Mike ended eventually. And she began dating a new guy, not Mike, if you were curious. For a little while, Tisha actually lost touch with Mike, but eventually they reconnected.
3: Things started to change. People started to kind of fade off. And Michael would kind of start to go in and out a little bit. He'd get busy, get a new job. Schedule just didn't match up. And things would start to kind of change around. And there was kind of a sabbatical, like a period where like he drifted away, he disappeared. And about 2013, I was working at a restaurant in town. And I had went to the bar area and I walked by and I saw a familiar face. And it was Michael. And we just same thing, like it was like, oh cool, we're all friends again.
2: But now Mike seemed different. Like something was off with a guy. And Mike was getting pretty forward with Tish at the moment as well. And she wasn't really sure how to feel about the whole thing.
3: We started hanging out, like that night after I got off work, he invited me over to their house. And I was like, duh, like I know you have a senior forever. Let's catch up. Sure, that's really cool. But this time around, he seemed different. Different in almost a little bit creepier of a way that I don't know how to explain. And again, I think I was just naive and brushed it off and was like, no, like, you know, we're friends. Like, haha, that's a joke. Or like, oh, you know, like, don't try to, like, do something because, you know... You know, we're just friends. Like, he's just joking around. He knows better. But I think now that I think about it, like, there were some passes of, like,
0: like, I think one time he tried to kiss me. So Mike had this habit of hitting on younger women. So when Emily took a road trip to see her best friend Tisha, Mike hit on Emily, too.
3: So we were out of high school. I was probably 19 when I went to go visit for the first time. We made a little road trip up to Wyoming. I believe it was 2011, 2010. My first impression of him, he was very nice, very sweet. Actually, it threw me off a little bit that he was much older than us. So that was my first kind of red flag. I trust Letitia. I trust that who she's hanging out with is, you know, good enough for me too. So I never questioned it. I never said anything negative. And plus, he was always very nice. He was always very friendly sometimes overly sweet and kind of flirty, but yeah, with you. yeah, I feel like maybe me over Leticia because I was kind of a fresh meat kind of new, yeah. new in town yeah. <laughs> visit. So he was oh. overly friendly with me.
2: In Emily's eyes, Mike's interest in her felt kind of normal. Like Tisha, Emily was a young, beautiful woman. And yeah, sometimes older men approached her all the time. And at the end of the day, Mike seemed perfectly normal to her, even if he wasn't really shy about his advances. And even if those advances were being rejected.
3: To me, he was attractive. He wasn't somebody that I would date or even bring home to my parents. But, you know, I'd flirt back, too. So it wasn't, I guess he wasn't that bad looking. To be honest, the only red flag was the age gap. Because he was about 10 years older than us, I thought it was a little weird that he was hanging out with people so much younger than him, especially us as girls,
0: women. But really, that's it. He was extremely nice and sweet even. So while Emily was in Gillette visiting Tisha, the two besties spent a good amount of time with Mike. They went out to eat with him. They hit the gym with him and they hung out at his place. Just general friend hangout activities. Even after Emily's visits, Emily and Mike stayed in contact through social media for a while. We kept in touch, so we would text sometimes. At first, it was through MySpace, so we would be talking through
3: MySpace. And then the second time I went to visit, I had Facebook. So we, you know, added each other on Facebook and continued to talk there. And it eventually just kind of faded out. We, you know, just kind of moved on with our lives, and that was it.
2: But even though Emily and Mike's connection was fading, Tisha, as we said earlier, was rekindling her friendship with Mike. Mike. But this time around, Mike's behavior was even more odd. On one occasion, Tisha hung out at Mike's place and she was drinking, so she planned on staying over. But then Mike started acting like it's kind of hard to explain, so we'll let Tisha explain.
3: I went to hang out at his apartment because I was like, cool, it's like, you know, like the good old times. Like, I know you, I'm comfortable with you, this is great. We were sitting out there on the couch. And I feel like the lights were dim, like maybe like the microwave light in the kitchen was on, the TV was on, the rest of the house was kind of dark. And he's kind of sat down next to me on the couch and just kind of laid his head down on my lap and kind of wanted me to like rub his head for him. Kind of like, you know, like how you do to a kid or something like that. I just remember being so uncomfortable about the way that all of that had happened and how he was doing it and like how he was talking. And he used to have this thing about ears he liked to rub ears and that's what i'm trying to remember if it was this incident that he asked me to sit there and let him rub my ears because he liked the way it felt and it was like a comfort thing to him i remember the story that he told me was he had a little sister who he was really close with when they were younger she would lay on his lap and he would sit there and rub his ears and it was very comforting to him and he liked how it fills, like how the earlobes fill. Back then I was a very timid person, very shy, didn't know how to get myself out of situations, but I just played it out. I just sat there and I let him do it and then eventually he fell asleep and I snuck out and I just let him stay there sleeping on the couch and I left and I drove myself home.
2: Okay, Jack, what would you do in this situation? I mean, okay, the ear thing is, I understand everybody has their, like, little comforts, right, from their childhood and things that make them feel nice and stuff. But, like, I feel like that's something that you would do with, like, an intimate partner. You know, it's not something, it just seems kind of weird coming out of left field. Yes. I mean, I personally have no childhood
0: comforts. So (laughs) maybe I'm the minority there. But I'll say I can count the number of skulls I've rubbed of men because that I feel like is super intimate. It's like more intimate than a random drunk kiss at a bar. You know, it's like, I'm not doing that unless you've told me that you love, you love me. me. Also, scalps are like
2: gross. <laughs> I don't know. The ear thing is even weirder to me. It's just like, it, yeah. it's, it's so like, it's specific and bizarre. And yeah, I mean, in this situation, it should be with somebody. I mean, you would think the comfortability of it would be with somebody that you really, really cared about.
0: So I can totally see why Tisha was weirded out, right? So perhaps not unsurprisingly after this encounter, Tisha and Mike lost touch once more. I'm sure Tisha was not mad about it because she felt strange after that last encounter. You can't really come back from weird ear touching, you know? Plus, Mike got a girlfriend after that, and he just stopped showing up at their usual haunts where they would both go. So Tisha didn't run into him, and she didn't think much of it at all. Until one day, Tisha saw a familiar face on her Facebook feed.
3: He kind of disappeared off the face of the earth, and then the next thing I know, I'm scrolling through Facebook, and I see the Gillette... News records and I really had a double take. I was laying there in bed and I was scrolling through and like I said, like I scrolled past it and I was like, but that face looks familiar. And I went back to it and I was like, it really? Who is? Why does that look like Michael? And I really, I kept scrolling again, but it was bugging me. And then I actually read the caption and I was like, oh, that's him. <laughs> and it is him. And and I was, I was total shock. I hadn't heard anything or seen anything of him again until here we are scrolling through Facebook and there's his mugshot on the
2: classifieds page.
3: I was like, there's no way this is real. Like something had to have happened.
2: And Tisha shared the article with Michael's photo on it and that's how Emily saw it.
3: I remember where I was sitting. I had just gotten married that year in 2016 and I was in my brand new apartment and I remember scrolling through Facebook. I was sitting down at the time and I passed through it. I didn't recognize anything. I just kind of went through it. And again, I went back and I thought, that kind of looks familiar. I open up the article and I read through it and I see this person did this and this happened. And it still didn't hit me that it was him, that it was Michael. My mind would not register and would not believe that this was the person that I knew. This was the person that I'd hung out with and had been talking to. You know, it gave... Gave me a couple seconds, a couple minutes to register it. And when I did, you know, they say the blood sort of drains from your face. That is exactly what happened. I felt it from the top of my head just go down all the way to the end of my toes. This incredible feeling of there's no way. There's no freaking way that this is the guy. This is the guy that did this. This is the guy that we knew. And immediately I called Leticia and I said, What was that article that you just reposted? Was that really him? Is this real? Like, are you making up a story? Like, is this supposed to be funny? She said, no, this really happened. Apparently, this is what happened. And, you know, we talked about it and almost probably cried about it, thinking, you know, we were in his house. We hung out with him. How is this possible? To think that he could do something like this, like we couldn't believe that we were in that situation or we could have been in that situation.
0: What the hell was going on? Why was 37-year-old Michael Montano's mugshot in the Gillette newspaper? What had he done that was worth reporting on? Was he the victim or was he the perpetrator? Was anyone hurt? To answer all of these questions, you all know the drill. We got to go back.
2: Michael Paul Montano was born in June of 1979. And Mike grew up with several siblings, although we don't know how many. But we do know that Mike spent most of his childhood in Rock Springs, Wyoming, which is where he met his childhood best friend, Jody Fortuna. Jody
0: Wade Fortuna was born on July 5th of 1978. And like Mike, Jody also spent his younger years in Rock Springs, Wyoming. And also, like Mike, Jody had several siblings, including two brothers and one sister. And as a child, Jody was reportedly a happy kid. He was just very sweet and friendly, a smiling child that was a joy to be around. And little Jody always wanted to be outside, especially if
2: he was able to hang out with his best friend, Mike. And Jody and Mike practically grew up together. And when things were tough at Mike's house, Mike even lived with Jody for a while. And over time, Jody's family came to love Mike like he was their own. And by the time they reached adulthood, Jody and Mike were as close as brothers.
0: As Jody got older, he started to develop a wide variety of interests, like fishing, for example, which is a perfect hobby in Wyoming. Jody was known to love fishing, and he'd go on a fishing trip whenever he could with whoever he could. And Jody was also a big fan of rock hunting. And Jody was also apparently a big, big fan of women.
2: And that's fine, you know, we don't judge folks who want to have a good consensual time with other folks. We've both been there and done that a lot. And in fact, the only reason we're bringing up Jody's dating history at all is because Jody was known for having a lot of the same girlfriends as another friend of his. And that friend was Philip Brewer.
0: Philip Robert Brewer was born on March 29th of 84. And in a lot of ways, Philip's life mirrored Mike and Jody's. Philip had siblings, including one brother and a sister. And Philip grew up in Green River, which is only 20 minutes from Rock Springs. And just like Mike and Jody, Philip loved to be outside. He would snow machine along the river, spend time at his family cabin, hang out with his family dogs, and he also loved to fish. And Philip's friends and family described him as being someone who's just really easy to talk to. He had a good sense of humor, he liked doing home improvement projects, and he was also the father of two young boys.
2: So that took a lot of his time as well. And as kids, Mike, Jody, and Philip frequently hung out together. They appeared to kind of be birds of a similar feather. And sometimes they were. So Jody and Mike were always close. And Jody and Philip were close as well. But according to everybody that knew them, Mike and Philip didn't get along very well. Their personalities kind of clashed with each other. But Mike and Philip were very close friends with Jody. So they kind of all just made it work. And all three of them remained more or less friends into their adulthood.
0: I'm not an expert, but this sounds like Mike and Philip both want to be Jody's best friend.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's always really hard with three friends, a friendship triangle. Somebody is always getting left out. Somebody feels like they're not as close to the other ones. Like that is a tricky situation. Absolutely. I mean, that is sort of the subtext of, of what we're talking about here, right?
0: So even though there was a little bit of tension between Mike and Philip, They maintained their friendships for a long time, which is pretty impressive for guys. You know, they're not always as proactive as women when it comes to their childhood friendships. It's really hard as an adult to maintain these relationships. And by 2016, Mike was working in the energy industry, which is what our first degree Tisha said. And Philip was also working in this industry. He'd nabbed a high-paying job at the Gillette oil field. And thanks to his high-paying gig, Philip was able to buy a BMW that, according to family, he was obsessed with. I mean, he saved up for this car. He got it and he cherished it and he loved it. He's probably one of those guys like in his driveway scrubbing the axles or whatever the heck, the hubcaps, the, the rims, whatever.
2: One of those, one of those. And Jody was doing really well too. He was a self-employed general contractor, but he didn't live in Gillette like Mike and Philip did. Instead, Jody planted roots back in their old stomping grounds of rock Springs. But when Mike called Jody and explained that he needed help in Gillette, Jody packed up a bag and made the six-hour trek to support his best friend.
0: Exactly, because according to Jody's mom, Mike had told Jody he'd been hired by a dealership to drive some cars to Colorado. So he needed Jody as an extra pair of hands to get this job done. In theory, this adventure should have and could have been fun. Take a road trip, make some cash, and have a jolly good time with your old buddies. So on August 27th of 2016, Jody left Rock
2: Springs and set out for Gillette. But things took a turn for the worst when September came and went without a single word from Jody. He hadn't contacted his family or his friends. He hadn't contacted anybody. And it was like he'd just vanished into thin air. So Jody's mom became more and more worried. And when Gail started asking around about Jody's whereabouts, people told her that Jody, Mike, and Philip were just probably on, I guess, a really long fishing trip. But Jody's mom was convinced that something was wrong. It's the mother's intuition that is always right. And one reason why was because every year on the anniversary of Jody's father's death, he would call his mom. But this year, he
0: hadn't. And at some point, Philip's sister, Jennifer, contacted Jody's mom. And similarly, she was concerned too. Jennifer explained that Philip was also missing. She hadn't heard from her brother for almost all of September. And that was really unlike him. He usually texted Jennifer and kept him posted on all of his happenings via Facebook and just cell phone. So as a result, Jennifer tried to report Philip missing to the Gillette PD
2: on September 24th of 2016. So Jennifer explained to the officers that Philip was last seen with Jody and Mike sometime in early September while they were all at Mike's place. But according to Jennifer, the Gillette Police Department just kind of brushed her off. They checked Philip's house without going inside, and that was it. The officers pointed to Philip's age, saying that in not so many words, that if a grown man doesn't want to talk to his sister, that's not our problem.
0: Right. And by October of 2016, the only person left in the trio of childhood friends was 37 year old Mike Montano. So Jody's mother traveled to Gillette to talk to Mike face to face on October 2nd. At that point, both Jody and Philip hadn't been seen for about 30 days. And Jody's mom was desperate for answers to her
2: questions like, where was her son? And where was Jody and Mike's friend Philip? When Jody's mom eventually spoke to Mike, he suggested, like others had, that Jody and Philip were on this extremely long fishing trip. Mike assured her that everything was totally fine, and he gave her a hug and affectionately called her mom. But Jody's mom had this sick feeling in her stomach. She was certain that Mike was hiding something, but she just wasn't sure what. And then on the next day, on October 3rd of 2016, she filed a missing person report for Jody Fortuna. Everybody loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. So it's going to take you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. I'm really feeling this because Lex and I both are really like into Gatsby stuff right now. So I am loving the vibe of this game. And you're going to step into the role as June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder it's perfect for all of the firsties out there there's mystery danger and romance as you search for hidden objects from the parlors of new york to the sidewalks of paris and you can customize your very own luxuries estate island think expansive gardens and beautiful buildings and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character can you crack the case download june's journey for free today on ios and android june needs your help detective download june's journey for free today on ios and android
1: Today.
0: By this point, everyone in Gillette knew that 38 year old Jody Fortuna and 33 year old Philip Brewer were missing. After all, word travels fast in small towns. But still, no one knew where the two men were. Philip and Jody's families were distraught, and they stalked Philip and Jody's social media accounts hoping for any activity and called every person they knew to ask if anyone had seen or heard from them. But sadly no one had.
2: Then finally on October 7th of 2016, about 33 days after Jody and Philip went missing, the police received a tip from a woman about a truck. And this wasn't just any old truck. It was Mike Montano's silver Dodge truck. And according to the tipster, she'd been hanging out with Michael and some friends at a bar. But when the bar got too crowded, she went back to Mike's place for some alone time There, this woman had noticed a terrible smell coming from Mike's truck. And curious, the woman pulled down Mike's truck's tailgate to see what the smell possibly was. And Gillette is a well-known hunting town, so it was entirely possible that Mike had a dead deer or some other animal sitting in the back of his truck. But when the woman peeked inside Mike's covered truck bed, she didn't see an animal carcass. She saw the decapitated head of 33-year-old Philip Brewer's. And according to this informant, Philip had been shot. When the police responded to this anonymous
0: tipster who'd allegedly seen Philip's remains in Mike's truck, the authorities couldn't locate Mike or his truck. Still, officers went to Mike's empty house in an effort to speak with him. At that time, Mike had been living at the home of his 22 year old girlfriend, Kylie Collins. But when the investigators took a good look inside this home, they didn't find anything suspicious. There was no blood, no sign of a struggle, nothing. But they did find something interesting outside the house. And that something was Jodi Fortuna's white 2001 Chevy Impala. So now the police knew what Jody's mother had suspected this whole time. Jody wasn't on any fishing trip.
2: So being equipped with this new evidence, the authorities got a search warrant. And with that, the law enforcement officers could use the chemical agent Luminol to detect trace amounts of blood inside Mike and Kylie's mobile home. And I'm sure you know, Luminol glows under black light when blood is present. And when the Gillette police shined their black lights in the Luminol in the mobile home, the floor was absolutely covered in glowing blue specks.
0: That means someone had lost a lot of blood in Mike and Kylie's living room, and in the hallways, and in the bathroom. Far too much blood for that person or persons to be okay after that kind of injury. And the police were pretty sure they knew exactly who this blood belonged to, especially since the luminol showed that the blood had been
2: smeared, like someone had tried to clean something up. Without any bodies, the police didn't have enough evidence to charge Mike with anything. After all, it's perfectly legal to have blood in your house, even if it is really suspicious law enforcement knew that they had to find and bring Mike in for questioning. But before they found Mike, they first found his girlfriend, Kylie.
0: In early October of 2016, Mike's girlfriend, Kylie, was questioned by the police. And during the interview, Kylie was visibly distressed. She stuttered and fidgeted. Her body language was hostile, closed off. It's safe to say that Kylie probably wanted to leave that police station very, very badly. But despite that, As the police started asking questions, Kylie became more and more responsive. And she explained to the police that she and Mike had recently gotten into a big fight. So they were taking a break for a few days just to cool off.
2: But when she was asked about the blood in her mobile home or in Mike's weird smelling truck, Kylie didn't give any useful answers. During the video recording of the police interview, you can see the investigators trying out all these different strategies to appeal to Kylie's sense of reason. And at one point, one of the questioning officers said, We know you know what happened. So you can tell us about it and you can be a witness. Or you cannot tell us about it and we still know parts of it. And you can go to prison for the rest of your life too. So when Kylie still didn't respond to this, the officer then explained, It's your chance to get on the right side of everything. And Kylie responded, I don't want to get on the right side of anything. I don't care.
0: Although the detectives were pretty sure that Kylie knew more than she was letting on, they didn't have enough evidence to arrest her or hold her on anything for that matter. So they let her leave and they followed her in the hopes that she would lead them to Mike and his hiding spot, which unfortunately she didn't. However, Kylie did lead the police to another important piece of evidence, Mike's truck. It was parked around the corner from Kylie's mom's house, which is where she was staying.
2: So a Gillette deputy approached Mike's truck and noticed blood on the tailgate. And as he opened the tailgate, he was overwhelmed by a foul odor. After removing a barrier of clothing and suitcases from the truck bed, the officer discovered several large totes with black trash bags inside them. And when he cut some of the trash bags open, he found two human torsos. Right away, the officer was confident that he knew exactly who the torsos belonged to, Philip Brewer had a tattoo of his last name across his back, and one of those human torsos did as well. On
0: the day Philip and Jody's torsos were found, Jody's mother was picking up Jody's stuff from his Rock Springs apartment. By this point, Jody had been gone for well over a month, and she knew in her heart that he wasn't coming back. A mother's instinct, you know? So when her other son called her to explain that word around town was that Jody's body had been found, she
2: was absolutely gutted, absolutely distraught, but not completely surprised. And it's known that news travels really, really fast in small towns. And this news was traveling at light speed. And everybody, including our first degree Tisha, seemed to hear that human remains had been found in the back of Mike Montano's truck. And the rumor mill was working very, very hard.
3: This is how small-town Gillette works. Everybody knows everybody and everything. My family knew that I was friends with him. And so once word finally got around to everybody, people would keep sending me like, hey, wasn't this your friend? Hey, wasn't this your friend? And I was like, yeah, I know. I've seen it. <laughs> For the fifth time. Yeah, I know. I've seen it. Locally, everybody knew about it. So it was kind of like everybody had heard some bits and pieces of the story, and that's what I was getting it from each person. And this lady who went home with him from the bar said that she supposedly saw, like, a head in the back of the truck. Like, she kind of got a glimpse of it but thought it was, like, a Halloween thing or something. Didn't think it was real.
0: As Gillette residents started posting on social media about Jody and Phillip's torsos being found, their family members were getting more and more frustrated. So some of them had found out that their loved ones had been murdered through Facebook. Like, talk about traumatizing. And when they tried to contact the police for more information, they were turned away. And the police told them to call back in a few days, implying that the information wasn't available yet, although it was circulating on Facebook.
2: And obviously the information was out, whether the police liked it or not. And in his interviews with Discovery ID's Murder in the Heartland, lead investigator Troy Hipsig said it was disheartening that poor communication had caused all of this. And he agreed that no one should have to find out that their loved one was killed through social media.
0: Later, it was officially confirmed. These were, in fact, the partial remains of Philip Brewer and Jody Fortuna. Now, 38 days after the men went missing, the Gillette Police Department officially had a double homicide on their hands. And the police's first question was, where were the rest of the victims' remains? All they had were torsos, no extremities. And the women who'd seen Mike's truck bed and called the police had seen a head. But they didn't have a head, so it had to have gone somewhere.
2: So luckily, one of Mike's co-workers had come forward with even more information. So recently, Mike was at work when he had spotted some empty 55-gallon drums. They belonged to the co-worker who would later speak to the police. Mike asked his coworker if he could have the drums. And when the coworker was like, What for? Mike replied, I gotta get rid of some bodies. And according to this coworker, Mike went on to explain the murder had to do with a drug deal.
0: So maybe Mike was doing that thing where he was joking because he's thinking, Oh, that'll be a joke, you know, like, yeah. and no one will think that's real. Or it could have been, you know, a hiding in plain sight sort of thing, or maybe Mike was actually trying to tell someone what had happened. It's not clear. Maybe it was a Freudian slip, you know, who knows. But what is clear is that shortly after the truck bed was discovered, the rest of Philip and Jody's remains were found in a Gillette storage unit. And we're not exactly sure how the police knew to look in this specific storage unit, but it was rented out in Mike's name and paid for by Mike's girlfriend, Kylie. So, Clearly, they either called around to storage units or they ran Kylie's credit card. And, you know, they obviously got some warrants that shed light on this storage unit. So it's as simple as checking some records.
2: So the police swarmed Mike's storage unit wearing hazmat suits. And upon opening the unit, there were flies everywhere. The smell emanating from the 55-gallon drums and plastic garbage bags inside them was horrible. And the sight wasn't much better the authorities had officially found Philip and Jody's severed heads and their limbs. An investigator, Troy Hipsig, told Discovery ID, I never thought I would see something like that.
0: On Saturday, October 8th of 2016, more than a month after Jody and Philip went missing, Mike was found at a local apartment complex. He was immediately arrested and charged with two counts of second-degree murder, and his bond was set at a whopping $2.5 million. And when police began interrogating Mike, It was hard for Mike to focus. And the officers think that it was likely that Mike was high, possibly on heroin.
2: And they described Mike as extremely emotional and upset during the questioning. During one of these initial questionings, Mike told the officers, I did it. I killed him. At some point, Mike also said that he didn't remember pulling the trigger, which is a far cry for not pulling the trigger at all. And Mike also told the police that he hadn't killed anybody before. So that's implying that he had now. And according to the affidavit, Mike said that he was going to plead guilty and request the death penalty.
1: today
0: Following that first few rounds of questioning, Mike eventually backtracked and started denying everything. And going forward, Mike would maintain that he didn't kill Philip or Jody. He'd only tried to hide their bodies out of fear that it would look like he had killed them. And when police asked Mike who he thought murdered Philip and Jody if he didn't do it, Mike pointed the police towards Philip's girlfriend of eight months, Shelby. So who's Shelby? So Shelby spoke at length in her interviews with producers of Discovery ID's Murder in the Heartland. And that's how we know that she was a trucker for the oil and gas industry. And she'd spent over 20 years in Gillette.
2: And sometime in early September of 2016, right before Philip and Jody had disappeared, Mike, Jody, and Philip went out to a bar with Shelby. After the bar, the four adults made their way to Shelby's house. And then everyone but Shelby proceeded to Mike's mobile home. And according to Shelby, she and Philip ended that evening on a bad note. So when Philip didn't reach out to Shelby for a while, she just wasn't really surprised. She didn't think her boyfriend was missing. She just thought he was angry. Shelby and Philip had had fights like this before, and she figured Philip was
0: cool enough and he'd reach out eventually. But when Philip didn't say anything to Shelby on her birthday, which was on September 17th, she knew that something was really wrong and by early october shelby feared the worst
2: but that night that we just referenced the one in early september that was the last night that anybody remembered seeing philip or jody so besides mike shelby was the last person to see philip and jody alive and at the time that the men went missing she was dating philip but she dated jody before and sometimes jody lived with shelby and philip and shelby was also connected to mike she described herself as being like a little sister to him a very close sister
0: yeah, this is has like love octagon written yeah, all over it.
2: Very confusing.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. So some suspect that Shelby was involved in the murders. However, at the end of the day, Shelby was cleared of any involvement, which begs the question: if Shelby didn't help kill Jody and Philip, and if Mike was denying everything, what had actually happened to Jody and Philip?
2: According to Mike's police interviews, as well as interviews with others and the evidence available. Here is the most likely version of events that led to Jody and Philip's untimely deaths. So all of this probably happened on September 2nd because that evening a neighbor who lived in the same trailer park as Mike and Kylie reported that they heard six gunshots and they also saw movement inside Kylie's mobile home.
0: Jody, Mike and Philip probably went to a bar with Shelby. Then they went to Shelby's house. Shelby then likely stayed there and then Jody, Mike and Philip proceeded to Mike's place that he shared with Kylie. It's not clear where Kylie was at the time since she also lived there. Maybe she was already in bed, maybe she was out, maybe she was somewhere else.
2: Then when Jody, Philip and Mike arrived, Mike likely injected a large amount of heroin, and that according to Mike's own statements is when he blacked out. Mike told the police that his next memory was his girlfriend Kylie waking him up on the couch the following afternoon. Kylie asked Mike, "What did you do?" and then Kylie showed Mike the bodies of Jody and Philip stacked on top of each other in the bathtub. Both Jody and Philip had suffered a gunshot wound to the back of the head, and Jody had two gunshot wounds in his back as well. But according to
0: Kylie's police interviews that she conducted later, Mike hadn't actually blacked out like he was claiming. Kylie said that when she asked Mike why Jody and Philip's bodies were in their bathtub, Michael began crying and told her that he fucked up. And he pulled a gun from under the same couch that he was sleeping on. This didn't surprise Kylie as much as it would surprise. Someone with a healthy brain like me or you or any of our listeners. According to her, Mike had apparently planned to kill Jodi before. This is something he talked about to Kylie. And he was apparently going to pull the trigger when he and Jodi were on that road trip. But Mike couldn't follow through with it because Kylie had unexpectedly joined them on that trip.
2: But regardless, both Mike and Kylie agreed about this next part. After discovering Jody and Phillip's bodies in the bathtub, Mike and Kylie talked about whether or not they could successfully hide the two men's bodies. And they decided that they could. Next, Mike had to figure out what to do with the victim's remains. And while Mike planned his next move, Jody and Phillip's remains remained in the
0: bathtub. And the smell was so bad that they ended up not staying in the home. It was too overpowering. And eventually, after two days, Mike happened to watch a movie where someone hit a dead body by dismembering it and hiding the pieces. And so, Mike decided that's what he
2: would do, too. For three days, Mike dismembered his childhood friends with a handsaw. Then Mike stored their body parts in garbage bags, tubs, a car top carrier, and four 55-gallon plastic drums. According to Mike, he tried to hide the remains in South Dakota. But every time he found a good spot to dump the bodies, he would make excuses as to why it wasn't a good enough location. So he kept the remains in his truck and the storage unit. And then it appears that Kylie and Mike cleaned up Jody and Phillip's blood, hence the glowing luminol that the detectives would later see. And according to Kylie, Mike removed a particularly bloody section of the bathroom floor and then replaced it. And they also patched over a bullet that was lodged in Kylie's mobile home's wall at about chest height. And Kylie shoplifted several bug bombs to help kill the flies that had congregated around the decomposing bodies in the storage unit.
0: According to court documents, multiple people heard Mike admit to these murders before his arrest in early October. And the Gillette News Record reported that one person said Mike asked to borrow his car to bury the murder weapon. And even though that one coworker said that Mike told him this was a drug deal gone wrong, Kylie said that Mike told her that he'd been angry with Jody and Phillip. He said that Jody and Philip were, quote, snitches who made him, quote, look like a joke.
2: Everyone who had ever met Mike was probably analyzing all of their previous interactions with him, wondering if they could have known that he was a murderer, including our first degree Tisha.
3: I was really in denial myself because it really was like I was in his house. I was around this person. I spent a lot of time with him. I brought Emily to his house. I brought Emily out of state to visit me and we would go hang out with him. And I put somebody else in that situation, too, where, you know, we thought we were safe. We felt safe. I mean, obviously we were. And so we would have never thought that this was something that would have ever happened.
0: Mike's murderous behavior didn't align with the Mike that she felt like she knew. The one she cooked meals for and helped out when he needed it. This Mike felt like a completely different person.
3: His mugshot is so creepy to me and the only way to describe it is like he looks like he's dead himself like he looks like he's in a trance or a different state like I've just never seen him look like that before and it's almost like gut-wrenching like makes me want to vomit in a way looking at it like I hate to say that I think that was the part why I almost didn't recognize him and believe that it was him because to me it doesn't look like the Michael that I knew
2: the city of Gillette was shattered in the wake of Mike's crimes and it felt like they couldn't trust anyone. If Mike had killed his friends, how could any of us trust anyone? No
3: one in their right mind would do this. I understand he has a history of being in prison, being in trouble, doing bad things, but you know, drugs, alcohol, violence, whatever he was, you know, in trouble for or has a history of, put that all to the side. This is I feel like more serious than any of that. This this feels you know, so disrespectful to his families, especially him knowing them, being childhood friends. It's just so, so disturbing.
0: Originally, Mike pleaded not guilty, but the state prosecutor's case looked like it was going to be a strong one. They had 60 witnesses lined up and a bunch of evidence implicating Mike, including the testimony of multiple inmates who claimed that Mike was bragging about the murders while he was awaiting his trial. And Mike allegedly told several people that he murdered Philip first so that he could force Jody to watch. Like, what a sick fuck. And even though Jody begged for his life, Mike shot
2: him anyway. So on the afternoon of Monday, January 22nd of 2018, only one week before his trial was to begin, 37-year-old Michael Montano changed his plea to no contest. And no contest is treated the same as a guilty plea. And on April 25th of 2018, Mike was sentenced to two consecutive terms of 60 years to life in prison ...for two counts of second-degree murder. For dismembering Philip and Jody's bodies, Mike received an additional 2.5 to 3 years. During Mike's
0: sentencing hearing, he turned to Jody's mom and apologized for his role in the tragedy, in quotes. But she was having none of it. She said, I will live the rest of my life knowing the same hands that chopped my son up, hugged me, and tried to console me. No mother should have to live with these thoughts. Today, Michael Montano is in the Wyoming Medium Correctional
2: Institution. Mike's girlfriend, 22-year-old Kylie Collins, was also charged. At first, Kylie faced three felonies and two counts of conspiring to mutilate a dead body. But since Kylie had started cooperating toward the end of the investigation, she was able to negotiate the charges down by a significant amount. Kylie pleaded guilty to charges relating to lying to the police and was sentenced to two years in jail. During Kylie's sentencing
0: hearing, she told the court, I wish I'd been strong enough to come forward, but I wasn't. I'm sorry for the grief and pain I caused, but with my weakness. I know sorry isn't enough, but it's all I had. But not many people were able to accept Kylie's apology. Philip's sister, Jennifer, said, The murderer chose to shoot those boys, but Kylie, and only Kylie, chose to stand by and let the murder escalate beyond comprehension. And Philip's brother, Steven said, She stood idly by while pieces of these young men were gathered up Just as if they were trash lying around, all while making a conscious decision to keep helping Michael. She may not have shot them, but she owns almost as much of my family's pain
2: as he does. Today, Emily is a little less trustworthy of people. After all, Mike had appeared to be just fine, and he definitely wasn't.
3: You can talk to somebody as much as you want, get it? You know, they're only going to tell you what they want, and, you know, they might not be who they really say they are. And I do think that. It may have changed the way that I see that. It wasn't so much like, oh, my God, I knew him so well that I could not believe he did this. Like, I didn't have that feeling because I did know him sort of more over, you know, text and Facebook and MySpace. But I did know him. So the fact that I know this guy and he did this, that is crazy to me that that I was near him. It's still just surreal to to think that, that he could have done this. Somebody I knew
0: could have done this. When Tisha looks back on all of her experiences with Mike, she has to wonder, was I ever in danger?
3: It was really just that shock factor. I couldn't believe what happened. Like, and then you go through the, oh, my God, I was in his house. And then even my cousin was like, oh, my God, like, you're lucky you didn't get murdered in your, in your sleep. And I'm like, well, I don't think it would have gone that far. But <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, but I, there was that initial shock factor at first. And now I'm like, wow, this is crazy. So both of us having to be able to experience that and talk about that together in a way that nobody else will understand, even though, you know, like we're not significantly involved, but it is like, again, we know like, wow, we know somebody who could do such a horrific thing.
2: In a strange kind of trauma-bonding way, Tisha and Emily became closer after experiencing this horrific event, and it makes sense. Shared experiences bring us closer, even when they're extraordinarily sad and awful, and it's nice to have somebody to validate that.
3: She was with me right next to me for my wedding, you know, when my brother passed away. um, She was right next to me all the time, always checking in on me. So I feel like this is just another thing for us that we went through together, and Maybe it has brought us closer in a way, in a weird... OMG, it's twisted way. <laughs> I think one thing f- for me, and I don't know if you feel this way too, is it's like it's it's nice to have somebody who knows the same person and understands kind of the same feeling, the same thought process, kind of went through that scenario with you like you did and can understand it, and we're both equally dumbfounded, we're both equally shock factor, you know what I mean? So both of us having to be able to experience that and talk about that together in a way that nobody else will understand, even though, you know, like we're not significantly involved, but it is like, again, we know like, wow, we know somebody who could do such a horrific thing.
0: When people tell us who they are, it's our instinct to trust them. Honestly, it's exhausting not to imagine running a background check on every person you meet at school, at work, at church, at the grocery store, at a party, on your sand volleyball team, anything, you know, to Google each and every name for hours and hours. It would be so, so much, so taxing, so emotionally laborious. And imagine doing all that research, trying to verify if someone is being truthful and deciding whether you can trust them just to find out that they were lying to you in a different untraceable way. At the end of the day, we have to accept a simple truth. Some people are not who they appear to be. They just aren't. They're going to disappoint us and they might even hurt us. And there's almost no way for us to prepare for it. All we have is hope and that has to be enough.
2: A huge thank you to our First Degrees for this week, Tisha and Emily. Thank you so much for telling your story. And if you are out there and you have a story to to tell, none is too small. Please email us hello at podcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram. Join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time. Join our Patreon if you want some more bonus content. And come around tomorrow. We'll have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed.
0: And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close. But not that close. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by Andrea Marshbank. Sources for this episode are Ancestry, Gillette News Record, Discovery ID's Murder in the Heartland, Find a Grave, Wyoming Department of Corrections, and the Casper Star Tribune. And as always, our First Degree guest is always our largest source.